Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We hope that you're doing well. Thanks so much to all of you who listen regularly and to those of you who've given us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you haven't had the chance to do that, you can do so and we'd really appreciate it. So that counts for something. In this episode, we have Amy Peeler talking about her book, Women and the Gender of God, and she's going to be speaking with Matt Bates and Aaron Heim, so we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to OnScript. I'm Matt Bates, and Aaron Heim is with me today. We're co-hosting this episode together. Now, Aaron, I know at least time, at, at least last time we contacted one another, you were on holiday. Um, were you doing delightful things on your holiday? Yeah, I was visiting family in Minnesota, which I yeah, they're very delightful. But um, I also then went to the Minnesota State Fair because it was at the end of August and I hadn't been for a few years. So I was eating all of the things that they serve on sticks, cotton candy, pronto pups, I don't deep fried know. candy bars, hot dish. <laughs> I don't pickles. know if that makes oh, us envious pickles. or just sad. I don't. Some of that's bacon good. Some of it sounds stick, nasty. Matt, come on, bacon on a stick has to make anybody okay. envious. Yeah, I can do bacon on Maybe a stick. Maybe not anybody. That sounds, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to open things up by reading a quote for us, and this is a quote from the book under discussion today. Here's the quote. What stands in need of more thought is the particular nature of Jesus, the Messiah's maleness. From the perspective of the New Testament, through the doctrinal tradition that affirms the virginal conception, he is male, but a male who became embodied like no other. The process that led to the male Savior's unique embodiment should shape how Christians view him as well as the God whom he reveals. That quote is taken from the book, Women and the Gender of God by Amy Peeler. And Amy is here with us today. Welcome to OnScript, Amy. So glad to be here. Thank you for taking the time to read and engage with my work. Now, Amy, you um, imply perhaps that it's easy to blame the patriarchy for the ways it, um, in which it has sometimes failed women. And I think most women can probably think about the ways in which the patriarchy has failed women. But your book is about a deeper problem. And um, what you're really after is that uh, is this assertion that Christianity has often gotten God wrong. Um, that there's something fundamentally flawed in our theological understanding of God and gender. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. I, the longer I live and the longer I study, I become more convinced that anthropology, while it's very important, is usually not the cause of difficult issues. It's the theology that lies underneath. And so in a conversation that I had with one of my colleagues, George Kalansis, in an early version of this work, he really encouraged me to press into theological assumptions. And actually, Matt, the quote that you read is a great window into this discussion. I think many have assumed, and, and not in a silly or simple way, 
that if Jesus is revealed as male, then that says something about God. Now, no no theologians, I think, who are mature would imagine that God the Father is some uh, fellow in the sky. All right, that's uh, that's put put aside fairly quickly. But it did become clear to me as I continued to read that assumptions that God's actions in creation in initiating salvation, in being transcendent, those were described as more masculine. And hence, there was an assumption that the language that we get for God is really rooted in some kind of masculinity. That then results in a secondary thought that if that is the case, then actually men have some kind of advantage. They are more like God than women. And I think it's that assumption, often unstated, that might have led to some of the mistreatment of women. I think at some point I say it's a lot easier to devalue and mistreat someone who seems less like God. And so that's a bit of the theological undercurrent that I was interested to investigate. And maybe you could follow up on that um, just by giving us some more examples of what you mean um, when we talk about, you know, on the one hand, it's a it's a truism, right, that God is beyond gender categories. Um, but on the other, there are certain practices, right, that um, have crept into the church. What do what do you have in mind um, in terms of some of those practices um, or other ways of exemplifying the problem? Oh yes, I'm so glad you named that early on in the interview, Matt. Uh, this I want to make clear to any reader that might be interested in picking this up. This is not some attack on any church system in which men have leadership and women don't. Those are very complicated topics, topics that I've devoted much of my scholarly life to consider. And so this is not, uh, you know, an attack on those kind of practices. I think there can be healthy practice in many different forms. Uh, So I want to name that first and foremost. I think I'm less attentive to practices than the uh, theology beneath them. And so here's some examples. Uh, God is certainly uh, the one who gets the ball going for salvation, right? God creates us, God sees the problem, God comes to us. I think anyone, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, would believe in prevenient grace, right? God moves first. But then there is this idea that it's more natural to men to be initiators. And that's what I call into question. I think that can be based uh, culturally. Um, one might look at how our bodies are made, but I think bodies can be interpreted differently. And now I think the assumption that males are naturally initiators, and therefore if God is the initiator, then God is more masculine, I try to complicate that and show that there really isn't a basis for it. Uh, the other one that's really interesting to me is the affirmation that God is creator. I found in in some literature, really across ecclesial traditions. So, you know, everyone has some things that I think are kind of missing the mark of the basic affirmations we make about God. The fact that God is creator, sometimes that is, is associated with the paternal role in procreation. And again, these analogies make sense, right? Our God is the cause of life. And so we would look to the great gift that we have to cause human life as a way of understanding God. But God does not create like men procreate. And here were the beneficiaries of science, right? But actually, ancient people had complicated ideas about conception and birth as well. They weren't ignorant (laughs) that it takes a man and a woman. And so whereas God can create 
out of nothing, right? I mean, and I know our Old Testament scholars are going to say, yes, and God use it. There, there's some discussions there, but still there's a division between creator and creation. This is not how men procreate. Men must have a partner. Men create that child out of something out of their bodies. Whereas I think most theology would want to avoid the kind of panentheism that might come from that. So I found wanting these associations with either paternity or masculinity as culturally defined, that God is that way. I don't think that we're, we see that either in the text or in the tradition. And that's what I try to lay out, especially in the chapter, God is not masculine. Uh, and I imagine that might be the chapter that I get um, the most questions. But I hope if someone is is able to take the time to read uh, that they see that I've endeavored to listen well uh, and try to understand. I'm sure there are gaps, uh, but this is not an attack. It, it is really an attempt to call all believers, no matter their persuasion on any number one of these um, controversial issues, uh, to a deeper sense of how God has been revealed in Christ. Yeah, thanks. I do think you have a, an ironic tone, like throughout the the text. You're you're certainly um, speaking to lots of different camps. Uh, very well researched um, and um, praiseworthy on that front. So yeah, certainly this book doesn't read as an attack, but you do have strong views, I think, and um, and that's that's okay to let those shine through. It's well written. Right. I think had I written this book when I was in my mid twenties, uh, uh, the tone would be much more apologetic. There's something uh, good about being post forty that you somehow have this newfound confidence to say, "I have some beliefs, <laughs> and I'm willing to share them." Well, let me introduce uh, Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler more fully. Uh, Amy is associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton, where she serves in the graduate program. She holds a PhD and an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary. She's written numerous articles and book chapters, but in addition to the book under discussion today, uh, which is uh, Women in the Gender of God, she has a couple other books, a monograph on Hebrews titled You Are My Son, which was published by TNT Clark in the LNTS series, as well as a book co-authored with Patrick Gray called Hebrews, an Introduction and Study Guide, also with TNT Clark. Amy stays incredibly busy on the academic front and the church front, too, uh, with lots of speaking engagements. Uh, that's, in fact, how I met Amy uh, as uh, we were uh, on a panel together at Wycliffe. Uh, so, um, and we've bumped into one another a number of times since. Uh, but, Amy, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to your title, Reverend, um, and what that means to you. And maybe, if you wish, uh, to connect that to this project, if you see connections. Happy to do so. Uh, yeah, even the title reverend is one that when people say it out loud about me, I still kind of turn around and wonder who they're speaking about. Um, if you, again, could to go back to our mid-20 selves, had told that Amy that this would be her life, I wouldn't have believed you. I had nowhere on my radar any sense that I would serve in the church. I had a very healthy church upbringing, excellent pastors and a really formative youth pastor. But the time that I discovered biblical studies, I was set on that goal of being an academic. It truly wasn't until, until the last year of my PhD, so after lots of higher education, that I even started to ask ecclesial questions and have found my way into the Episcopal Church and have now uh, been a part of that for 11 years and ordained for six. Uh, so that's a very important part of my life. In fact, um, in my own kind of sacramentality, I think that really is uh, at the basis of my vocational call that then manifests in both the classroom and in my home. 
Uh, and so, yeah, that's, I get to serve, uh, weekly, at, at my parish. I don't preach weekly. I preach about once a month and then, but always am able to participate in worship in some sense. So in writing this book, and really this has been a long journey for me as a Protestant to discover the riches of thinking about Jesus's mother, Mary. She's amazing. And we have so much that we can learn from our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters as, as they have contemplated her for millennia. Uh, but I have come to think of my ministry in very Marian ways. Uh, she was called to birth Christ. And there's a sense in which all of us can be Marian. May Christ be formed in you, Paul says to his congregation. So I think about that. Um, if I might share just something that runs through my head uh, when I have the great blessing of presiding at the table for Eucharist, um, I think as that uh, cloth is laid out on which the paten and the chalice sit, and then at the end of the service, it's the job of the priest to make sure that everything is is cleaned up. Uh, Kathleen Norris writes about that she went to a liturgical service and was very impressed that the priest did the dishes at the end of the service. And I think of that often. But as I'm folding that, that piece of cloth, I often reflect on the way in which Mary would have been attentive to the cloths around Jesus, the swaddling closet from Luke, or even the changing of his diaper, which she would have done. And I think about that as the, the body of Christ that we've participated in with grace, I have the chance to, to hold that as well. Uh, I think I have a line somewhere and um, in, in deference to my Christian brothers and sisters who make a different decision about women's priesthood, it has been striking to me that when one asks the question, can a woman handle the body and blood of Christ? It seems to me in the affirmation of Mary, God said yes to that question. And so that has been a powerful encouragement. As I've studied for this book and written on it, it's been many years, a long project. May that be an encouragement to younger scholars. Sometimes projects take time, and I'm actually really glad for that. I, I think I needed to mature to write this well. But a lot of the reading has been very hard, <laughs> encountering voices who would not only question my ecclesial call, but also my ability to teach as an academic simply by virtue of the fact that I'm female. I want to hear those voices, uh, to always ask the question, have I heard God rightly on this issue? And to be open to instruction if I have not. But in times of incredible self-doubt, did I? am I doing the right thing? Am I being faithful? Am I really less? Does God really prefer men? I had to face that question head on for a number of weeks, and those were dark days. But when I would come then to the table and proclaim the beautiful words of the gospel that are part of the Eucharistic service and truly encounter the Lord at that table... I would almost have a sense of the Holy Spirit lifting up my downtrodden face and saying, you are valued. Don't believe the lie that you are less than because you're female. For remember the way that I came into the world through the body of a woman. And that tether to the table week by week was something that kept me going through this project. Well, it's a beautiful story. Um, I love uh, the analogy of the diapering. Um, yeah. And... Uh, very um, 
yeah, powerfully connected to your own life story. Um, as we think about the kind of the main theme of your book, I think incarnation is right at the center of what you're doing, right? And for many, that may be a surprising theological locus because um, that might be identified as the problem, right? Um, that, ah, that yes. you know, that, that Jesus is male um, and that when God takes on human flesh, he takes on human flesh as a male. Yeah. Um, and why is this then a site that needs more theological attention? Yes, the incarnation. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful question. And and I have been so benefited by reading feminist scholarship. And my sense is that many of those forebears, especially back at several generations or a generation ago in the 70s, you know, Ruther, Rosemary Radford Ruther asked the question, can a male savior save women? As I grew up rather pietistic, I never asked this question. <laughs> I was pretty okay with Jesus. This never occurred to me. But I think that naming of the challenge, uh, the scandal of the particularity that Christ was male is a wonderful gift to the church that we can press into this question. So if it is the case that the incarnation is the place where God is fully revealed, absolutely, we have the gracious revelation of God in creation, through the election of Israel, through the scriptures. But Christ becomes our lens, right? This is, as Hebrews says, this is the radiant, he is the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of God's being. This is our center. This is how we interpret. And so if his maleness, which um, isn't, I think, a problem, but a wonderful thing, that helps us not only know about God, but humans' inclusion in God's story. Sometimes people will ask, um, and if maybe listeners to other podcasts have heard me speak about this, but I think it bears repeating the question, well, could, could the Savior have been female? Uh, this is a place where I've come to affirm no, <laughs> because we're our Savior female, and in God's decision that God would fully enter humanity, which means conception and birth, well, then we would have had a woman giving the flesh to and birthing a woman. And then you leave out half of human creation. <laughs> but by the Savior being male, but from the flesh of a woman alone, you have this embrace of both male and female to... Um, uh, which I believe Christ is the image of God, as Paul says in a few, a few of the Pauline texts. I think that really is he is in his virginally conceived body is the template of the Imago Dei in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So our inclusion really is, starts with uh, him. So I hope, Matt, that I got to your question in saying I don't find it problematic, but I think it's a very good question to ask. Why did God decide to come in this way? I know you did answer my question, and I'll have a follow-up for it later, I think. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let Aaron ask one here. Well, I think um, I'm going to take us out of the realm of incarnation, which is very material, and ask a, a immaterial question, perhaps, uh, about language and metaphor. Yes. <clears throat> because uh, the other thing that you make clear in your introduction, or in your first chapter, is that that there is this, you're you're looking or you you want to name the imbalance in the tradition that there are more metaphors in scripture and the tradition that present God as male than there are metaphors that present God as female. And that, you know, as feminist scholars have said, and you assert with, I think, just one of the wonderful 
<laughs> neologisms of the feminist movement, that this promotes the fallacy with a PH that God is male. Yeah. Um, so I guess it maybe is worth just pointing out what you mean or defining what you mean by male metaphor. Sure. And why then it's not enough to simply um, point out the counterbalancing female metaphors for God in the tradition. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So I'm attentive especially to critical scholarship who uh, maybe has said to someone like me who's aiming to still stay in line with the authority of scripture, look, this whole thing is so thoroughly male. <laughs> right? There's even been some recent articles, I think I cite David Klein's in, in SBL, like, why are we pretending, right? This whole thing is so incredibly male. Lord and king and warrior and uh, and the husband of Israel, right? This is just everywhere. And so I wanted to, to recognize that. And I'm so grateful to those scholars who have pressed into the maternal pictures, the mother hen, the rock who bore you. These are powerful. And I think one, one reason I didn't press into that in my book is that it's been done well and that, that literature exists. But if it is the case, and I don't think scholars who have done work on that are doing this, but sometimes I hear that described as, well, let's sprinkle in a little feminine. My sense is what that's doing is actually reinforcing the assumption that I'm trying to get rid of, (laughs) that everything else we read really means that God is more masculine. And so we better sprinkle in a little bit so we are disavowed of that. I think if you don't attend to the quantity uh, and qualities of the way in which God is described as male, metaphorically, then uh, you're you're kind of ignoring or you're 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 setting yourself in a bad place not to have a good answer for all of that literature. Father is something that. Uh, and again, I would want your help me, Aaron, to talk about this in more correct ways as a metaphor theorist. But father to me struck me as something different in that, yes, does God have, hmm, oh, see, I don't even like this. I was about to say, does God have paternal qualities? But I'm fairly resistant to the idea that like fathers are a particular way and mothers are a particular way. Um, My husband and I, we married very young. We were 19 and we haven't ever quite fit the boxes for gender stereotypes. And, uh, and praise God, we have like an awesome, I just adore him. We have such a rock solid marriage. And so I'm like, you know, I don't like stereotypes. And so I don't even know that there's a way to describe paternalness other than if you go back to the mechanics of conception, but then how one displays that. So I am resistant to that. But when we make the assertion that God is father, now we have a handful of times that that's said in Israel's scriptures, not very often, but it, but it's present. But for Christians, the locus is again, the incarnation. And what do fathers do? Fathers cause the birth of a child. That is how one becomes defined as a father. And I think that's how humans knew to use that language for God. It's because Jesus said, I have a father. Now, this is non-sexualized. My first chapter really emphasizes Matthew and Luke make clear this is not some Greco-Roman narrative of the rape, of rape. Uh, It is non-sexualized, but God is still father because God causes the birth of this Messiah, this child. And so Jesus calls God father because he does he already has a mother <laughs> that that term doesn't mean because he has a real mother and so 
I end up affirming uh, the the traditional language for God. I think we should use Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without embarrassment. When I say that in, in any setting, I'm not like, oh, I wish it was more inclusive. I'm like, go for it. Because when we say Father, we are actually invoking the incarnation. We're actually making space for the way in which God came. And so I don't know that if I'm, if that's in the realm of metaphor, because it seems rooted in the event that happened, but maybe you can help me with better ways to speak about that. Yeah, I'll have to think about that because I've gotten pushback on um, whether this is metaphorical or not. And I want to insist that it is not because, um, but, but because we use metaphors to speak about events that happen all the time. Right. Like right. And that's, that's the good. fall of the Iron mm-hmm. Curtain. That's an event mm-hmm. that happened, but we mm-hmm. describe it metaphorically. Right. So I'll have to right. think about whether or not the, the the language of fatherhood. I also, ooh, it makes me a little bit uh, uneasy to to link father God's fatherhood to the incarnation and not the eternal begottenness. Oh, yes, so I'm so glad. Which I was going to say, I don't think you're doing that because you make no. it really clear in your book that that's exactly. not what you're doing. But Yeah, um, let's name that here. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I absolutely affirm eternal begottenness. And we get there, I, I think we get there through scripture. I mean, Hebrews 1 would yeah. be enough yeah. <laughs> to say this is an eternal relationship. Mm. But... I was really interested to discover in the tradition that uh, that early theologians are very comfortable saying like the eternal begottenness of the son has some kind of paternal things going on and has some maternal things going on. And it, and so in one place in the book, I say, well, why wouldn't couldn't we just call God parent? Because that would uh, get the intimate relationship, but yet the differentiation between the father and the son. So I do not think we can use familial language for that, but we, we go with father because of the incarnation. So it's like the incarnation allows us to see and gives us language for what was always true. Hmm. But keep thinking about that. No, I will have to keep thinking about that. We'll have to have a, a an offline, <laughs> offline conversation about it over over a drink at SBL or something. Yes, yes it's a date. <laughs> well, Amy, are you ready for a, one of our infamous speed rounds? Oh, I've been preparing for this. Yeah. Okay, you can't prepare because you don't know what we're going to ask. I guess that's so, right. All right. Yeah. Um, what, Amy, is the single best type of Halloween candy? Reese's peanut butter cups. Gotcha. I mean, because it's cheap and people give it like there's other better candy. But, uh, you know, I, I always tell them when my kids were literal, I was like, go for the orange stuff. Pick the orange. No, your answer was wrong, Amy. The answer is Butterfinger. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh. Who likes Butterfingers? What is wrong with you? <laughs> That's not a candy. That's Question number two. Question number two. Now, I know you do CrossFit, uh, and so if we were to start an on-script brawl right now, and it was Aaron and I against you, uh, mm-hmm. we're fighting, um, could you beat us up, do you think? No. No, I don't think so. Like, if we had a um, pull-up battle, I, I might win, because yeah. I've been working on my pull-ups for about yeah. a year and a half. Wow. Uh, but but the aggre- I, I, don't, I don't have much aggression within me, so okay. no, I would, I would yeah. defer. 
Yeah, Erin Aaron is a Mennonite background also, right? So she's probably not going to fight. Um, I'll get militant. No, no, the, 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 okay, yeah. Um, you could probably beat me in the pull-up. Con- but push-ups, I've been doing my push-ups faithfully, so I might could beat you in the push-up category. Maybe, maybe. It would be a good competition. No, I think you could. I, I struggle okay. with push-ups, so okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what's the strangest thing, Amy, about growing older? Oh, uh, well, related to the previous question, I think it's like the constancy with which one has to be in physical therapy. Uh, I, I'm like, like bonded with my fair physical therapist now, but you know, I'm not going to stop what I do. And so I'll just go see him all the time. <laughs> yes. Wow. Our bodies do, um, start to decay, right? A bit. It seems like, uh, yeah, there are advantages to being in our forties and disadvantages or whatever we may be. Precisely. Right. Um, Yes. All right. Well, um, and uh, uh, here's another question for you then. Uh, the classic one you could have maybe prepared if you're an on-script listener, but what is the most important biblical studies or theology book written in the last 50 years? Oh, yes. Um, I have reflected on this. Um, may I say what's been influential for me? Uh, because I think our field is diverse enough that that, that, would, that feels like a hard claim to make. Um, I, one of the first academic books, truly the first academic biblical studies book I read was Moral Vision of the New Testament, Richard Mm -hmm. Hayes, uh, given that as a junior in college. And for me, it was the first time I saw someone, uh, you know, attending to scripture in a really intellectual, thoughtful, but yet also with important implications. Uh, That book kind of opened my eyes to the kind of work that I wanted to do. And then it was cool that when I went to Princeton and Ross Wagner was my advisor, that I kind of stand in line of Hayes. Um, There's a new volume coming out that's the kind of the 25-year reflection on moral vision. And I look forward to that. Um, I I have also been incredibly shaped and benefited by Sarah Coakley's work. Uh, that main she may not appear as often in my footnotes, but uh, it would be kind of this uh, great um, iceberg that is maybe beneath the surface. But I think her her complications and both respect for feminist theology were very formative for me. So she's definitely one of my academic heroes. You cheated, Amy. You gave us two answers. Oh, I did. Oh, did. Okay, right. Yep. That's okay. Well, I did right. Bible, we'll I did slide. biblical studies okay. and theology. Yep, yep. We'll let it slide. All right. Um, in, in chapter two, uh, Amy, you you discuss how God, who is maximally maximally holy, right? He chose to dwell in the womb of a woman. Uh, which shows obviously that the female body is not inherently sinful or unclean. And I think that you do some helpful work along with many others, Neusner and recently even Matt Thiessen's book, right? Kind of trying to break the link between the idea of, um, yeah, of moral sinfulness somehow being connected to ritual uncleanness, right? And showing, no, that's not true at all, right? Um, Anyway, I think that's all very helpful work. I I was wondering, um, and maybe this comes out of my own context because I'm a Protestant professor at a Catholic university, right? And um, a very common analogy is the temple analogy to say that, okay, just as, you know, the temple in ancient Israel housed the divine presence, and then by by virtue of that was made holy, um, the, the move is made to Mary, right? And to say like, yes. okay, um, is the same true for Mary? If Mary housed God in her womb, right, does that make Mary holy? And so I'm curious, you know, as you're a Protestant, um, how you, um, especially, but also you're intensely interested in Mary, how you answer that question or how you navigate those issues? Yes. Yes. Oh, what a wonderful question to reflect on. Uh, Initially, 
I think it's a, and actually my colleague just said this in class. Uh, we're teaching our Mary class. We've taught this four or five times. We're doing it right now, just probably day before yesterday. Is that if you are um, bearing God for nine months, that is going to make an impact on you. <laughs> um, those of us who are blessed who have been pregnant, uh, you recognize that 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 interchange, how that child is forming, is very shaping of you. And so, if we can postulate that she was bearing God, that is going to make an impact on her. I I have found that the New Testament has this almost kind of re- uh, reticence to give a whole lot of detail, <laughs> and of course, the tradition builds upon this. I, I've come to the place of saying that Catholic um, doctrines about Mary, her sinlessness, her her immaculate conception, her assumption, are things that I think the text could allow because the text says so few details, but neither do I see them as demanded by the text. And so while I would want to affirm that um, Christ would make an impact on her, I am also really struck by that if he is fully human and she is fully human, I think the text also allows us to imagine, as I do in this chapter, uh, that she is a parturient. She would be bleeding after the birth of Jesus. Now, this is not sinful, but it does make her impure and unable to come to the temple by virtue of Leviticus 12. In fact, there it says a woman who is in that state can touch no holy thing. And that is a striking line. And then I found myself reflecting in this time period in which she would not be allowed to come uh, close to the proximity of God in the temple space, yet she is holding and nursing God. <laughs> on, on most of her 24 hours period, she is doing that. That to me is, a, I, again, I just I move to awe. And, and that is not an abrogation of the Jewish purity laws. And nor is it, I think, has to be in any kind of disagreement with Catholic doctrine, for they would affirm the, whole, the same thing. Um, now, they would see her, and I think this is beautiful how they read Old Testament typology to see pre- prefigurations of her. Um, that's a really innovative way to read. It's, it's in the tradition. And so I think that's very allowed. I just do get nervous uh, that there are sometimes implications of that, that then Mary becomes so elevated and so separated from real humanity that she no longer can make an impact on anyone else other than herself. And through the history of the church, there has been some negative outcomes in how um, the thought about human sexuality generally. And so I, 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 mean, I have not, in fact, every time I teach this class, I have a deeper appreciation for Catholic and Orthodox theology, and I become more firmly Protestant. <laughs> uh, and that's just how it's spinned out, spinned out for me. So I think there's a logic to Mary's sinlessness, especially rooted in the Old Testament, but I don't think the New Testament demands it. And sometimes, I hope I'm saying this with all respect, sometimes the way in which God reveals God's self is actually not according to the logic that we might have constructed. And and there's something, again, maybe I'm just at base a Protestant, and I want to keep emphasis on her full humanity. Maria, Maria Warner's uh, Alone of All Her Sex, uh, she's a journalist, but she really has pressed into the way that Mary has been damaging for Catholic women. I do not think that's the whole story, but it's a part of the story that needs to be listened to. 
Um, and then Elizabeth Johnson's kind of reply, uh, our sister said, no, she's, she's one of us. This is always a spectrum that we're kind of wrestling with. Well, thanks. Uh, that's um, helpful. And yeah, as I reflect on it, I, I'm always struck by the fact that the New Testament, when it uses tem temple imagery, it applies it to the whole people of God, right? That like, we are we are the temple, right? And um, yes. it could have gone toward Mary, but it doesn't seem to move in that direction. Anyway, there's much more we could say about Great that topic. Point. But um, that's yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let Erin ask a follow-up or a different kind of question, whatever she wishes to do. Well, I want to keep talking about Mary, because um, I find that yeah, I just found this really interesting as a, a former former Catholic who has a very interesting sort of route into into Protestantism and become more firmly Protestant. I think as I as I get well, I don't I, I shouldn't say that because now I found the Via Media in the Anglican mm. tradition. So anyway, right, right. Um, let's keep talking about Mary. Um, in chapter three, you deal with the question of Mary's agency and her mm. consent in this act of incarnation. Um, mm. And you rightly note that, you know, for some interpreters, God's act of impregnating a teenage girl um, is deeply disturbing because um, for all sorts of reasons, but the power differential, um, her, the potential for her to to be oppressed in this. Um, and, and then on the other side, you know, others um, like yourself, I would include me in this view, um, view Luke as highlight in this Mary's strength and her her blessedness and and actually her agency in this act. Mm -hmm. So I think my question is, what evidence in the text do you see for Mary's agency? Um, and what what does that agency then contribute to the wider theological case that you're making um, in regard to God's gender and the incarnation? Mm, excellent. Yeah, that's uh, this is one of those places that uh, just the wealth with it. This is when I love being a New Testament scholar. I mean, like the, God's word living. It is so rich. I Oh, the, my page. I wish you could see my Bible, but like my Luke 1, 26 through 38 is a well-loved page uh, in my in my I mean, see my Nestle Elan. It is a mess, um, <laughs> but there's so much here. So I. And, you know, we have to um, think about the way in which Luke, that he tells us he has eyewitnesses. And so I am open to the fact that he has heard her story either directly or from through one other person. Uh, but yet he crafts this. He's a good author. Um, Gabriel comes to her. And interestingly, right, he says, um, uh you are favored, right? Like God is with you. These are rejoice. You have been given grace. These are great things. Now, admittedly, an angel, an angelic presence that shows up somewhere. Uh, some church tradition says that she was at a well. I think a lot of Protestant art has her like in her room. Um, we aren't told exactly, but it's her space. That's going to be disconcerting. But Luke says she's disturbed. She's troubled by the words that were spoken to her. So I, I think you see glimmers of her agency, of her thoughtfulness, in that she doesn't just immediately say, great, I've won the spiritual lottery. God's going to do something great to me. Sure, okay. But she's processing. She's like, yeah, and, and what does this mean? And then he tells her, you're going to have the Messiah. I love Amy Jill Levine's reflection on one of her books. I think it's in, in Feminist Theology, where she says as a Jewish teenager, she was lived in fear that she was going to have to have the Messiah, <laughs> that, that she would be visited by an angel. Uh, and so this is good news that Gabriel is telling, right? Uh, there's no cross and resurrection here. Not all is disclosed. He said, this hope from among many Jews of uh, someone to sit on David's throne, this is going to be your child. 
that's really good news. And again, she doesn't just kind of immediately, okay, great, sure. There's no pluckiness in her. And when we, if we reflect that she probably is in her teens, may, early teens, again, I've, we've, there's data out there, of mar- normal marriage rates, and she is betrothed. Again, she asks this question, and how will this be? Uh, that that's that's a challenging part of the text because you would think if she's betrothed, she's just going to assume, hey, once that I uh, consummate my marriage with Joseph, this is what's going to happen. But I think she's heard something in Gabriel's word or Luke describes her as hearing something in Gabriel's words that she's like, yeah, this sounds a little bit unusual. <laughs> uh, there's something going on here. He will reign on the throne of David forever. Not just he's one in a line of succession, but he himself will reign. And so then she asks this question, how, how will this be? And then we get this affirmation of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. The Shekinah glory, the same language that we get about the temple, uh, will alight upon her. And then the story of Elizabeth. Gabriel doesn't have to tell her this, but it's almost like an encouragement for her understanding and faith. Hey, there's something miraculous happened. Love this statement. For n- nothing is impossible with God. Now, if we stopped it at verse 37, I think we would be right to kind of see this as forceful. Gabriel said, you will conceive, you will bear a son, you will name his name. Nothing's impossible with God. Like if it stopped there, we'd kind of be like, what choice did she have (laughs) from the deity? But we get her verbal response. Behold, I am the maidservant of the Lord. And I wrestle with that slave language. That is not easy. Uh, benefited by Courtney Hall Lee, Black Madonna, who really, from a, the social location of the African American experience, tries to read that text. Um, Let it be unto me. And then we get, and the angel departed from her. G- Gabriel does not leave until he's heard Mary's. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say he because I don't think angels are really gendered either. Uh, let me find a way to say that. The angelic being, Gabriel, does not leave until Mary responds verbally and accepts. So that's a few of the evidences that I see of agency. And I think that's so vitally important with how God works in in the gift of salvation. Now, I maybe am treading upon some theological debates there, but um, there is a place for human response. I think all camps would say that, would would see that. Uh, And then you said, what does this tell us about God? then any kind of worry that God is being this kind of dominant male, I think is obliterated by a close reading of this text. There's a deference to her uh, and to her decision-making in this. Well, I have a a big question. Um, I have a couple big questions I wanted to ask. I don't know how many we'll be able to get to, but one of them um, that's kind of a response, not specifically to a chapter, but more to your whole project um, and so um, you obviously center on the incarnation as that which reveals Jesus to be a male like no other male uh, because he's born of a virgin woman. Uh, but your book, unless I miss something, doesn't touch on a, a potentially larger question that at least came to my mind when I was thinking about the incarnation. And it's this. Um, the New Testament, as well as we would even want to say the tradition, because, for instance, Irenaeus will include this as part of his rule of faith, indicates that Jesus ascends bodily, right, to the right hand of God. Um, and so when he ascends bodily to the right hand of God and begins to reign eternally, um, there's a sense in the Christian tradition, which we would want to say that God is eternally male, right, that there is a sense in which is ongoing, not from all eternity, but from the, the moment of the incarnation on when he assumes humanity, right, that he is eternally male. 
Um, and so my question um, would be this, does that have any bearing on your project? Um, and maybe as part of like thinking through it, um, we might want to think through what resources are at our disposal to talk about, does the incarnation affect God's life? Like God in God's own eternal self, right? Does that, yeah, does that in some way, is God affected by creation? We've had different um, ways that's answered in the tradition. Anyway, I've asked, I've hit, I've hit you with a lot of different <laughs> uh, questions all at once, I suppose, but um, however you want to unpack any of that. Um, but the main idea is, um, you know, as Jesus, uh, that God becomes male eternally, right, with the moment of, the, with the incarnation. What bearing might that have on your project? Absolutely. And and you really have hit upon, I think, the provocation of the language that we use when we say God, Theos, and I think this is just good New Testament exegesis, uh, what do we mean, <laughs> right? Are we speaking triune? Are we saying the first person, the father? Are we saying the son? So, um, you know, God is not male, uh, the kind of flashy title of uh, the first chapter, but absolutely in another sense, God is male by virtue of the incarnation and, as you say, the ascension and the reign of Christ. So here, of course, I'm going to go to Hebrews, unsurprisingly, and I am so grateful for the work of my friend and colleague, David Moffat, uh, who has made, in my estimation, a really beneficial argument to say, Ascension matters. Uh, it matters to the logic of the atonement of Hebrews, but it matters writ large that, and in the language of Hebrews, we have an archegos, a pioneer, a human who is now at God's right hand, who has then opened the way that all in other embodied humans can then, can then dwell in God's presence forever. And so David has a tendency of saying, and um, I had the great opportunity to be at St. Andrews for my sabbatical in which I started this project in earnest, been thinking about it for years, but started writing when I went to St. Andrews, took a class with him and, and he would say, Jewish flesh is in heaven. <laughs> and, and he was trying to kind of push this point of if we believe in the resurrection and then the ascension, this is what is true of our advocate who lives to intercede for us. And at times then I would respond to David, I totally believe you that there is Jewish flesh in heaven. And where did that Jewish flesh come from? Mary of Nazareth. And so is, do you see me like jumping out of my seat? Like this is even more exciting that like our Lord who represents us is the same body. I think you know, First Corinthians 15 is so hard and y'all would be much more expert than I being a Hebrews person. But there is, a, there is a consistency there, right? This is not a different Jesus. And of course, there's an amazing transformation that we can't understand. But it is, it is him. It is the incarnate one who is now ascended. Hence, I said a moment ago, I was open to Catholic uh, doctrines. The one that I most resist is the assumption of Mary, because in some literature, you get this idea of like Mary too has ascended. I understand that comes from a place of wanting to respect her. But what you get at times is like Mary is the example of female humanity that is ascended to God. And Jesus, what does he become? The example of male humanity who's ascended to God. And I, I'm sorry, my savior is not Mary. My savior is Jesus. And so I don't want to be distanced from him and his reign at the right hand by saying that I need a woman in that place. Um, I don't because he embraces me as well. Now, what that means for our understanding of how the triune God is affected by God's decision to become incarnate, 
here I would need to defer to my theologian colleagues. I'm simply coming from the place, especially of Hebrews, that I believe this is what is being asserted, but the metaphysics of it uh, are really beyond what I have spent the time thinking. I'm dear friends with James Arcati, uh, an analytic theologian, and he and I have had some discussions about this that he says, "Mm, how does this actually, how do the metaphysics of this work out? I need to listen more to James. Uh, But I also, this is, I think, the gift of us biblical scholars. Again, there might be a logic to theology, but uh, we always have to come back to, but what what direction does the text push us? Yeah, very well said. Well, I think I want to ask a a different big-ish question that's not really a follow-up. But it's still about Mary, <laughs> so there's a there's a there's a theme running through this episode. Um, I think I think one of my big questions. Um, I think you've gone a long way in showing us the importance of Mary as the mother of God, um, and what what her role as mother of God or God bearer should bear in our um, understanding a robust understanding of the incarnation. Um, and I think in doing that. One of your aims is to affirm, you know, the dignity and the agency and certainly the full humanity of women. Um, But I suppose my lingering anxiety um, is that someone who affirms traditional gender roles could read your description of Mary's motherhood, um, which is an honored status, which affirms the goodness of a woman's body and so forth. Um, They could read that as a stamp of approval for a version of um, an essentialized version of femininity of motherhood. Um, that yeah. characterizes much of complementarianism um, mm-hmm. in evangelical churches. So I mm-hmm. guess my question is, um, I don't think you're trying to do that. So why doesn't Mary's motherhood do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it, Erin. Um, I first want to directly answer your question, and then I have a side comment. Uh, I do not think affirming her maternity does that because scripture gives us so much more than that she is mother. Uh, And I think the place to see this with most uh, specificity are in the few narratives in which she and the brothers of Jesus come to him in the gospel. So Mark 3 and parallels. And they're standing outside waiting to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, this is my, these are my mother and brothers, those who do the will of God. Now, in, in many ways, that text is is read as Jesus is kind of sliding her, pushing her aside. I don't think so at all. I think within the framework of the narratives, it's actually a good thing for her. She is not only valued for her biology. She is ultimately valued as someone who displays faith. Uh, and then, of course, g- is given with most color in Luke, who has given us the whole Magnificat and Annunciation and the temple narratives to show her as someone who has heard the will of God and done it. And so she's not flattened to maternity. Uh, She is prophetic speech with the Magnificat. She is there at Pentecost proclaiming the gospel. And I have the exegetical argument that I hope supports that. And so if she is not flattened to maternity, then I would hope that that couldn't, again, I don't want to lift her up as like a special case, though no one can do the work that she did ever again. But she becomes a template, I think, for how God works with all women, all humanity, really. Uh, but but I'll return to kind of the motivation of your question. Um, I exist in a space and have long done so in which I am in close fellowship and collegiality and on a personal level with better, I know there's better language, but with complementarians, uh, even complementarian women. And maybe it's just kind of uh, 
I, I think, well, I was going to say maybe it's a personality thing. I'm, I really, I hate conflict. And so maybe I'm just kind of putting my tail between my legs and turning, you know, not facing the issue. But I don't think so because um, I think there could be, if women find themselves as a desire to be mothers and that is kind of the fullness of their life, uh, I want to celebrate that for them. It, it, for me, this becomes an extension of agency. And I think this is kind of the good of third wave feminism is that you don't, all feminists don't have to look the same. Uh, like if that is one's call and one's joy, I think God has kind of blessed me that my two best friends are stay at home moms that are fairly conservative uh, on both theology and fascinatingly politically. Uh, these were not people that if you look at like our demographic, that we would be friends. Uh, but we have been for a long time and very meaningful relationships. And so I see God at work there. Now, where I think the problem is, uh, and here, here's my post 40 self saying something very clearly. Um, the problem is, is, is when someone might lift up kind of an essentialist, yeah, but all women, their main goal in life is to be mothers and to stay home and make that a necessity to be faithful for all people. That ignores. I think the breadth of scripture in which there are multiple callings into the body of Christ and ways to serve. And it flattens Mary herself, which is the focus of, of your question. So if someone wants to press into that, awesome. That is, so, that is a beautiful way to serve the kingdom and God meets you there. But, oh, and I talk to a lot of women who have gotten some kind of message. This is the only way that I can be faithful. And I say with boldness, no, sister. God may call you to multiple things. The richness of my life, getting to be with students and then going home and playing Minecraft with my sons. What a gift that I can do multiple things. And I see that in Mary's life as well. Yeah, thanks. That's helpful. And I, I mean, I, and I certainly don't want to, I'm, I'm a mother myself, so I don't want to denigrate the, the experience oh, of you, motherhood you just in case my, um, no. <laughs> my children listen yeah, you to weren't this at, at some all. point. <laughs> um, but I think in our experience, I mean, I, I've been a mother now for 10 years and I've been an academic for um, just about the same amount of time. Both of my children were born um, when I was doing my PhD at the University of Otago. And I think what struck me in in those moments um, and was affirmed with reading your book is just that that our God is big enough for Mary to be more than one thing. Yes. Um, that she's not she's not essentialized because God is not into essentializing things like she's a she's a full individual and she responds um you know she responds within her individuality just as um god calls us to all as, sorts of as things all people really do like yeah. what person is one thing exactly right like exactly. like all people do lots of things <laughs> and so um the creativity of god cannot be bound into single category mm -hmm. Well, now, Amy, we're coming to the end of our time and we want to be respectful of your time. How about you take 30 seconds, a minute to tell us your greatest hope for this project? Thank you for that question. Um, it, and truly, um, my practices of spiritual discipline the last few weeks have been attempting to be very intentional in praying that the God would be glorified by this work. Uh, the first page is the the Greek text of the Magnificat, Megalonui Hesuke Muton Kurion, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Uh, my hope is that any reader uh, might come to this text and walk away and say, our God is awesome. Uh, that is my main hope. 
Uh, now I, I, I am attending to women, right? I think early on I was like, but I want to affirm men. And I recognize that, you know, there's lots of conversations about people who don't feel like they fit, fit neatly into the category of male and female. And I want to talk to them too. And, I, you know, for this project, I, I'm going to speak to women. And so I think maybe a subsidiary goal or kind of the driving passion is that those young women who sit in my office and say, yeah, where do women fit in the Christian story? Because I don't know that I have a place is to say, you do, you absolutely do. Look at the way that you are valued. And hence the first sentence, God values women is very important to me. And gentlemen, friends, brothers, that's good for you too. (laughs) Because when women are valued, especially in a story that claims that God has a mother, that can only be to the benefit of men. And so uh, talking with my friend, Brittany Wilson, who writes beautifully and powerfully on masculinity, I think there's good for everyone in this text. Uh, and uh, if people, if Protestants want to know more about Mary, that's also an awesome bonus. Well, on script listeners, that's all the time we have for today. We've been speaking with Amy Peeler about her new book, Women and the Gender of God, which you can pick up on the link from the OnScript website. Amy, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you all both so much. I appreciate you as scholars and friends. This has been good. And OnScript listeners, we'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.